0: Here we are reminded that leadership in the kingdom of God is explicitly not like leadership in the world. Leadership in the world is about power and position and prestige. Leadership in the kingdom of God is about service, suffering, and sacrifice. And therefore, the one does not qualify you for the other. And the one must not imitate the other. Our model for leadership is Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus often turned the expectations and assumptions of the disciples completely upside down, and we see that, and we see him doing that again in this chapter with respect to leadership and entrance into the kingdom of God. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your
0: word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 20. The parable at the beginning of chapter 20 flows very naturally out of the dialogue at the end of chapter 19 between Jesus and a young man, a rich young ruler, actually, if we combine the descriptions provided by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This man had come to Jesus asking questions about eternal life. And everyone listening in must have assumed that of all the people that spoke to Jesus that day, surely this man was close to the kingdom of heaven. He was pious, he was observant, and he was rich. In the Judaism of Jesus' day, that fact alone would have convinced many people that he was already living under the favor and blessing of God. And yet, After spending a few minutes with Jesus, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Chapter 19, verse 22. So this person that everyone assumed to have been close turned out to be far away. This person everyone assumed to be first turned out to be last. And this then leads very naturally into a further discussion of how the grace of God turns our expectations and assumptions about life and about the kingdom completely upside down. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went out. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. The parable is built around a story with many familiar elements. The climactic addition of atypical elements at the end of the story leads to surprise and further reflection. That's how a lot of parables work. At the start of the story, you're supposed to say, I know this one, or this sounds a lot like what happened to my friend, But then all of a sudden, the story takes a totally unexpected twist, and that's where all the teaching happens. This parable is trying to get us to think about how the surprising and altogether sovereign grace of God causes many who are first in this world to become last, and many who are last in this world to become first. Again, the parable can be understood as a further commentary upon the surprising encounter Jesus had with the rich young ruler, a person that Everyone present would have considered first in terms of being a likely candidate for the kingdom of God, but he turned out to be last. It it turns out he had a serious obstacle to overcome, and that at present, anyway, was keeping him outside and even pushing him away from the kingdom of God. So let's think about these two stories together as they mutually interpret each other. Jesus seems to be saying, first of all, That the grace of God is given to many people whom we would never consider worthy of receiving it. That's obviously the main point of the parable. The people who worked the whole day got what they deserved, but the people who worked only an hour received far more than they expected, far more than we the listeners expected. So God's grace is given out in surprising ways to people we would generally consider unworthy of receiving it. Secondly, it seems like Jesus is saying that the fact that God gives grace in unexpected ways does not mean that he is ultimately unfair. God is never unfair. That's not what's going on in the story. The master in the parable was fair to some and surprisingly generous to others, but he wasn't deceitful or dishonest to anyone. He was just with some and Gracious to others, as was his right to be. You see, we sometimes think that if God isn't generous and merciful to everyone equally, then he has been unjust and unkind. But that is not the case. God is just to some. That is, he gives to some exactly what they have earned. While to others, he gives more than they could have ever hoped for, asked for, or imagined but he does not act in an unfair manner to anyone. Thirdly, Jesus seems to be saying here that the surprising grace of God may irritate some people who have a rigid quid pro quo understanding of religion. We think, for example, of the parable of the prodigal son and the irritation of the older brother. He was bothered by the grace and mercy shown by the father to the wasteful and sinful son. It made him feel like he was being mistreated, despite that he was not. And it is easy to imagine how the parable of the workers might well have irritated the rich young ruler had he stuck around to hear it. He wanted to earn his way into the Father's good graces. He was willing to work hard. He was willing to go above and beyond, and he would likely have been annoyed at the mercy and grace of God being given to people who had done so little to deserve it. The parable is thus a warning to all people who want to earn their salvation, and it is a warning to each of us to check our hearts for irritation towards those who receive things from God that we're not sure they're worthy of. The story continues in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. How fitting it is that immediately following a parable about the surprising grace of God, we have the third and final passion prediction of the Lord Jesus. What could be more surprising than this? That God would give his only son to die for our salvation. Praise the Lord.
1: Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second because I've often wondered how Jesus knew that the Messiah would have to die. He predicts that several times in the Gospels, and I've, I've often wondered how he knew? Is it just a simple matter of him being God and knowing everything? Or did he figure it out by reading and studying the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah? That's a really good question. Obviously, we want to affirm
0: that Jesus is truly God and truly man. That's our starting place. And so whatever we say beyond that, we certainly don't want to depart from that or in any way contradict that. However, it does seem that what Jesus does in the New Testament he does as a human being, free from the deforming influence of sin and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Right after the baptism of Jesus, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness so that he would be tempted. And then after that experience, Luke tells us, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Let's Luke 4, 14. So the gospel seemed to be saying, This is what a human being is supposed to be like. This is what you are supposed to be like. This is what a human being, in the image and likeness of God, untarnished by sin, filled with the Holy Spirit, can be. I think that's a big part of what we're supposed
1: to be seeing when we
0: look at the things that Jesus is doing in the Gospels.
1: Well, that's really cool. I'm not sure I've ever thought of it that way, but it does make the example of Jesus more accessible. I'm always tempted just to write those stories off by saying, well, you know, (laughs) Jesus was God after all, so obviously he can do the things that I can't do. But you're saying that, yes, Jesus is God, but also Jesus is a perfect human and he is doing the things that a perfect, restored human can do. Is that right? Yeah. I I think it's important to distinguish
0: between the two natures of Christ. When Jesus says, for example, that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun, I think we need to understand that he is speaking there with respect to his human nature. Seeing that there is a helpful reminder to see it elsewhere as well. So, long story short, Jesus didn't just play the God card every time he faced a challenge. He is showing us what humans are capable of. And so I think it's appropriate to apply that lesson here. I imagine that Jesus knew that the Messiah had to die because he
1: discovered it in his study of the scriptures. So uh, what, what scriptures are you thinking of? Because I've often wondered that.
0: Well, first and foremost, one thinks of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53 in particular, but then also the eschatological writings at the end of Zechariah. There are four pictures there. Picture the coming king, picture of the rejected shepherd, the pierced one, and the great or final renewal. And taken together, they seem to be talking about a coming king who will approach his people in humility and peace, but who will be rejected by the leaders and who will be pierced and who will die on behalf of his people, only to return in triumph at the end of all things. Jesus must have studied passages like those and with his perfect understanding and discernment developed a very clear sense of who he was
1: and what he was destined and ordained to do. That's really cool. Uh, Where in Zechariah do we find those depictions you were talking about? The eschatological writings run from
0: Zechariah 9 through to the end of the book in chapter 14. And interestingly, apart from the Psalms, they represent the most frequently cited portion of the Old Testament in the passion narratives of the gospel. So clearly, Jesus taught the disciples
1: to understand his suffering and death through the lens of those stories. Wow, that's very cool. I never knew that. Thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 20.
0: Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Here we are reminded that the disciples still do not really understand. They are seeking power and privilege and prestige, while Jesus is predicting his betrayal, death, and resurrection. The disciples are still thinking that the kingdom will come immediately, and they want to be first in line. They want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. They want to be the premier leaders in the kingdom. They are more like the rich young ruler than they realize. They have forgotten everything Jesus just said about true greatness in the kingdom of God, back in chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, and also what he has just said about the sovereign and surprising grace of God. James and John obviously do not understand. They don't really see yet what is coming. They don't see the serving and the suffering that will necessarily characterize all leadership in the kingdom of God during the time of the great delay. They don't know about that yet, but they will come to know about it personally and experientially, In due time. James, of course, was the first of the twelve disciples to be martyred, and John was imprisoned and tortured and exiled on the island of Patmos. They did drink the cup. But at this point in the story, they have absolutely no idea what they're asking. Verse 24 And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Here we are reminded that leadership in the kingdom of God is explicitly not like leadership in the world. Leadership in the world is about power and position and prestige. Leadership in the kingdom of God is about service, suffering, and sacrifice. And therefore, the one does not qualify you for the other. And the one must not imitate the other. Our model for leadership is Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It it boggles my mind, quite honestly, how often we in the church look to models of leadership in the world, how often we hold up successful athletes or successful politicians or successful business leaders as if they are a model for us to follow. When Jesus says explicitly here, do not, do not imitate leadership as you have experienced it, as you have seen it, In the world. That's not how we do things. Things in the kingdom are explicitly different than that. Our model for leadership is Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, incidentally, this of course introduces an important metaphor for understanding the cross. According to this verse, in some way, the death of Jesus on the cross was a ransom that set many people free. So, what, what does that mean? What, what, what price is being paid? To whom is the price being paid? We have some questions. The Greek word lutron was most commonly used to refer to the purchase price of a slave. Thus, we understand Jesus saying that his death on the cross would purchase many out of slavery. Many scholars see this as a further allusion to the main suffering servant passage in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. As, for example, Isaiah 52.15, which says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. And Isaiah 53.4-6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then perhaps most importantly here, Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. D.A. Carson, for example, says here, the implication of the cumulative evidence is that Jesus... Explicitly referred to himself as Isaiah's suffering servant and interpreted his own death in that light, an interpretation in which Matthew has followed his Lord. Now, as to the identity of the one who receives the payment, uh, scholars differ somewhat. William Hendrickson says here the ransom price was paid, not as Origen maintained, to Satan but to the Father, as per Romans 3, 23 to 25, who also himself, together with the Son and the Holy Spirit, had made arrangements for the salvation of his people. Closed quote. Other scholars prefer not to go quite that far, not to be quite that precise in parsing the metaphor. So, for example, R.T. France says, There is, of course, no exact analogy between Jesus' death and such ransom language, so that the passage does not require us to ask to whom payment is made or how the equivalent is calculated. The point is that a payment was needed to achieve the release of many and that Jesus' death provides it. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight And followed him. Now, this story is placed here, first and foremost, because it happened here. It happened as Jesus was leaving Jericho and heading up toward Jerusalem and the cross. It is likely also placed here because it so perfectly illustrates what Jesus has been saying to the disciples about the nature of ministry and leadership within the kingdom of heaven. It is not targeted at those we might expect, it is for those who are so easy to overlook according to worldly standards. One doesn't serve in the kingdom of God in order to obtain fame, power, and earthly recompense. One serves and sacrifices as Jesus did for the sake of the lowly, the needy, the least, and the last. Those sovereignly chosen to receive a surprisingly generous portion of the grace, mercy, and compassion of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, amen to that. Pastor Paul, before we go, I'd love to come back to something you said there at the end. You said quote, "One doesn't serve in the kingdom of God in order to obtain fame, power and earthly recompense. One serves and sacrifices as Jesus did for the sake of the lowly, the needy, the least and the last." End quote." I agree with that, and yet, here we are on the radio talking to who knows how many people. I mean, we aren't famous by any stretch of the imagination, but we are reasonably well-known, and someone could argue that what we're doing violates the spirit of what you've just said, and certainly there are Christian celebrities with huge platforms, massively popular podcasts, and best-selling books. Is that necessarily sinful? I mean, should they stop doing that and make a beeline for the homeless shelter to hand out soup? How does this principle work out in real life? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and of course, the Internet has democratized
0: the publishing and communications world. So anyone really with a microphone and a laptop computer could theoretically become powerful and famous. But I don't think that makes laptops and microphones inherently sinful. I think the issue is focus, motivation and intent. I think that a pastor who isn't focused on serving his people has drifted from the principle being espoused in this passage. If the pastor is more interested in who is watching his YouTube channel instead of who's listening to his sermon or who he can be praying for in the community, then I think he's lost the plot. But because the internet functions as a force multiplier, sometimes the things we do to help and serve our own people can end up helping other people all around the world but I don't think that makes those efforts inherently sinful. If the focus is helping people and if the motivation is to serve the people of God and if the intent is to be useful and edifying, then I think you just have to leave the results up to God. But I think you have to be very wary about caring more for the people out there than you do about the people of God who've been entrusted to your immediate care. I think the pastor who spends more time building his platform than he does tending his flock has missed the point here. And I think, too, this is a reminder to kneel down and to stop climbing. I think kingdom leaders need to be thinking a lot about children and new believers, the people typically with the least influence and power in our congregations. We need to be thinking about how we can help those little ones, those biological and spiritual babies. And we need to be doing everything we can to support those folks and to lift them up. If we're focused on that and committed to that, then I think it is more likely that we will maintain the humility and demeanor that is pleasing to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ.
1: Hmm, That sounds good to me. Thanks for that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.